Friends, this is Easter Sunday. Uh, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if Christ is not raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. But the good news is, he is risen. The tomb is empty, and Jesus has won victory over sin, death, and the grave. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, Easter morning, is the most pivotal event in human history. It literally changes everything. I'll be reading uh, the Easter story, the passage this morning from the Gospel of Luke chapter 22, or 24. Rather, I'd encourage you, if you have your Bible open, to Luke 24, verse 1. Otherwise, you can follow along on the screen where almost all the verses this morning will be there. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. This is the Easter story with which we are familiar. Jesus after the seeming disaster of Good Friday, the disciples' hopes that they had placed in Jesus were crushed. They were dashed. Could he be the Messiah, their coming king? They had seen him perform mighty acts and miracles. And yet, he was betrayed by one of their own number. He was put on a, a kangaroo court trial. And by the Roman soldiers, he was nailed to a cross and died outside the city gate. Jesus, on Easter, changed the story. He changed the narrative. He took defeat, seeming defeat, and brought about glorious victory. The Apostle Paul says in the great chapter of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 25, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That passage, a resurrection chapter passage, speaks of Jesus on Easter as a conqueror, as one who has gone into battle and has won a battle, has defeated death itself. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe that our atonement is vicarious in nature and Jesus on the cross was the Lamb of God. We call that substitutionary atonement. Believe it or not, though it's clearly taught in Scripture, there's discussion in uh, even evangelical circles today about the nature of the atonement. Some people are rejecting substitutionary atonement in and in its place they are choosing another model 
They call it the, and we'll see it a little bit later, the Christus Victor model. But I believe these are not mutually exclusive. I believe they are both taught, both ways of looking at what Jesus has done for us. And that's what we're going to be focusing on today. Christus Victor, Latin for Christ is the victor. Today's message, I call it amazing victory. Jesus was not defeated at the cross. He willingly laid down his life for you and I only by the power of God to take it up again. He won for us that day an amazing victory. And victories against all odds, victories snatched from the jaws of defeat, they hold an incredible attraction to mankind, don't they? We love to look at people in situations who seem to be down and out and then they win a victory. In fact, that very phrase down and out is a sports term. It speaks of a boxer who's been knocked down but gets up off the canvas to win. Boy, I remember the shock a few years ago when the unstoppable wrecking machine, which was the heavyweight champion, Mike Tyson, who had just gone through all competition like a knife through hot butter, he faced a, a journeyman boxer, unknown, named Buster Douglas, and he was knocked out. Buster Douglas, his 15 minutes of fame were glorious. I remember there was even a, a video game, a boxing game, Buster Douglas Boxing. By the time the game was released, his 15 minutes were up, and he lost the heavyweight championship, and Mike Tyson returned. But those underdog stories are great. Aren't most sports movies like that? Uh, my grandson and Isaiah saw a wonderful, heartwarming film. And it's one of those I can give a pastoral recommendation to. It's called 12 Mighty Orphans. The story of 12 young men who were orphans and lived in the Masonic Orphan Lodge in Central Texas during the Depression. And they didn't even have equipment but they had a teacher who taught them football and they went on to win national titles. In fact, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt referred to these young men during his fireside chats as an example of overcoming all odds. Oh, so many movies like that. The Mighty Ducks. Oh boy, that was my son Luke's favorite movie when he was young. The Mighty Ducks. But I remember when I was a kid, I love the story of Rocky Balboa, the Italian stallion, a journeyman fighter, the story of Buster Douglas before that ever took place. Oh, he was an underdog in Rocky 1. Not so much in Rocky 2. Maybe even less in Rocky 3. Rocky 4, who was he fighting? Mr. T or the Russian, the Soviet Superman? I don't even know. And then uh, Apollo Creed's son, in Creed, it just goes on and on. It's hard to make them the underdog over and over, but you get what I'm saying. Well, as much as we enjoy those type of stories, history itself has numerous, numerous true stories of people winning life and death battles against all odds. I mentioned to my wife, I said, this is, this is what I'm thinking of doing. Find, talking about a couple battles from history as examples of amazing victories First one she thought of, she was going to help me, Masada. I said, I said, well, we've been to Masada, and it's an incredible story. But I said, you realize, dear, that the good guys lost, and they all died. 
Oh, well, you know, but they held out quite a while. I said, yeah, that's true. But it, in the end, it wasn't a victory. It was a, it was a Pyrrhic victory for the Romans, means it cost them so much. And it was an amazing story, but it still wasn't a victory. But I have a few for you this morning, recognizing Caitlin's request that I don't dawdle too long in the annals of history. But I just want to encourage you to take the seatbelts, which are provided in the pews, buckle them, and we are going to go quick through... No, I saw some people actually looking. (laughs) And we're going to go right through some history today. The first of these amazing victories is one of my favorites. It's the earliest in these uh, four examples I have for you, and it takes place in 1415. It's the Battle of Agincourt. The Battle of Agincourt, Band of Brothers. That wonderful phrase, Band of Brothers, isn't just a wonderful book or a mini-series about World War II. It comes from William Shakespeare's play, Henry V. And it's set at the Battle of Agincourt. Well, Agincourt is one of the greatest battles of the Hundred Years' War. That was between England and France. It took place when the English, who remember, they came, the ruling class of English were Normans coming from France, Normandy, under William the Conqueror. They took over England, but they still had French land as well. In those days, though, the French were growing to be a strong nation, and they took those English holdings back. Well, the English kings, they uh, protested. And finally, after numerous battles and numerous war, the war continuing year by year, an incredible man. The Prince of Wales became king. His name was Henry. He was the fifth of his name. And he took an army and invaded France. He took a town called Harfleur and he had to besiege it. And you know those days when you built trenches around a town and tried to take down the walls by force and so forth. The army had to be there for a long time. Sanitary conditions being what they were. The English army eventually captured the French town. But dysentery ravaged the ranks. And his army, which was not ever that that large to begin with, got much smaller in a hurry. Henry V made a decision that people to this day don't understand why. He didn't stay in the safety of the walled city. He launched into the heart of France with his small army, was going to march across France to the port of Calais, which was in English hands, to have fortifications and be reinforced. The the French king couldn't believe his luck. He sent an enormous army with 10,000 armored knights. Knights in armor, you know, the guys, they were like the main battle tanks of their day. And they harassed and harried and chased this small English army, trying to stay between them and Calais all the way across France. And finally they trapped them as they finally got across a river and they had to give battle to them. Well, they didn't have any choice but to finally fight a battle against the enormously overwhelming French army. But what Henry could do, he could choose where he was going to fight. So he found, he found a field. The harvest was in, the fields were plowed for the fall work, and he found a large shallow valley. It was a plowed field. And he set his army at the bottom of this valley, and on each side was a forest so the knights couldn't attack them from the sides. And they dug in. They were going to fight the next day. Well, William Shakespeare didn't miss a chance to, to, to based on what the historians taught in their day, that, that Henry 
in disguise, went through his meager, small army that night to see what the spirit of his men were and how they were going to fight. And he found that even as a, a rain began to fall, his men, sick and tired and hungry as they were, they didn't have a defeated spirit. They had put their faith in young King Harry and they were going to follow him into battle. And so with his heart emboldened the next day, Shakespeare penned those immortal words as Henry spoke to his troops. And he said, there's few of us here and yet the ones who are safe in England are going to, they're going to be jealous of us someday because they miss this battle on this St. Crispin's Day. Remember that soliloquy in part. He says, but we... But we, it shall be remembered, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today who sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, be he ne'er so vile. This day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves a curse they were not here. And hold their manhoods cheap while any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's day. Well, the men heard that, and though he only had a thousand knights compared to 10,000 of the French, they stood and waited for the French attack. But the land was chosen well. The plowed field became muddy, and the horses bogged down, and the knights dismounted on foot. They walked across the field, and when they reached the English, they were exhausted. (laughs) The English had already caused such damage because the English longbowmen were the most powerful weapon in the world. You know, peasants all were forced every Sunday after church to go to the archery range and practice all afternoon every week. Every male had to do that in England till their longbows could go through the thickest armor. Oh, by the time those poor knights arrived at the English line, the English exchanged their swords for mallets and hammers and they beat them into the ground. The French that day lost the flower of their nobility. 10,000 mostly nobles died in the battle, while the English lost 400 and continued on victorious to Calais. Henry won the war, and the French king named him his heir to be both king of England and king of France. But dysentery took his life before he could inherit the French crown, changing history forever. Doesn't take away from the incredible victory of the Battle of Agincourt. Well, not long after that, military technology changed. The siege of Vienna was won by floating peas. Floating peas. Well, the siege of Vienna. Vienna, well, that's in Austria. What war was fought there? Well, it was one of the most pivotal battles in human history. You know, the uh, the Muslim conquest beginning in the 7th century kind of had petered out by the time the Crusades fought. After the Crusades, around 1,000 to 1,200 A.D., both sides, east and west, were exhausted. And Islam and the, the rulers seemed that they were no longer going to be on the trail of conquest until... Incredible warriors, Seljuk Turks, converted to Islam. And then Islam was supercharged as far as conquest. The Turks founded an empire that stood until the First World War, the Ottoman Empire. And you know they were within a hair's breadth of conquering Europe. In fact, Suleiman the Magnificent in 1529 launched out in May. He conquered the Balkans. He conquered Hungary. He moved into Austria, the gateway to Western Europe. 
and besieged the city. He had an army of a hundred thousand men. He had 500 cannon. That was new technology. They fired mostly stone cannonballs, but boy, they put the fear into the enemy. Well, Ferdinand I, the brother of the Holy Roman Emperor, faced Suleiman in battle, lost, and fled to Western Europe, leaving Austrian Vienna unguarded until the marshal of Austria arrived. His name was Wilhelm von Rogendorf. And an old 70-year-old mercenary German leader named Nicholas Graf Salm, they took the small garrison of Vienna, they closed the gates, they fortified it, and they were surrounded by a 100,000 men. Well, the cannons couldn't knock the walls down. The technology wasn't that well yet. But the Turks, they were masters at undermining the walls. Miners would dig tunnels under the walls set fire, and the walls would collapse. Learning that that was their plan, Wilhelm came up with an idea. All of the walls surrounding the city, he put large bowls of water. And they poured dried peas on top of the water, and all day and all night they would be watched. And when miners would dig under the walls, the vibrations would cause the peas to be disturbed. And then right away they would respond by sending their own miners underground. And there were these incredible fights as they stopped those tunnels and destroyed the mines of the Turks. They almost captured the Turkish Grand Vizier. Finally, in a last-ditch desperation, they opened the gates. The Austrians attacked the miners, destroying their equipment and killing all of the miners. Then with fall and weather and winter coming on, Suleiman had to admit defeat. And that little garrison defeated him and saved Europe. And he went back to his capital, tried again, never got as far as he did at that time. He lost because of dried peas floating in water. Incredible. Underdog story. Well, those are all overseas. How about a Canadian story? Well, There is a battle I'm sure most of us have never heard of. It was the Second Battle of La Colle Mill. The Second Battle. Have you ever heard the phrase, the best defense is a good offense? Well, sometimes people say that. It's true or it's not true, I'm not sure. At this point in the War of 1812, the Americans were frustrated. It seemed that they had the power, the might, the military, that they should be able to make it into Canada and take one of the major cities. In fact, along the St. Lawrence, they had tried to capture Montreal again and again and again. Finally, the general, his name was Wilkinson, he knew that if he didn't have success, he was going to be relieved of command. And so he took a raiding party through a lightly fortified area of Quebec. He had, a men, he had an army of 4,000 men and 11 really good cannon. And they headed for Montreal to open the road for the larger army behind them. But they reached a bridge. A bridge they tried to cross, but it was defended by Major Hancock. He was a British major, and he had like 80 British troops and about 160 uh, Canadian troops with him. And with this small group, they tried to defend this bridge though they were outnumbered like 12 to 1. They had a few rockets. You remember the Star-Spangled Banner, the rocket's red glare? Those were early rockets, and they had some of these called Congreve rockets that they would launch, and they 
didn't really do any damage. They were more like fireworks, pretty much what Ireland does on our, on our fellowship center on New Year's Eve. But all it did was dishearten and kind of confuse and scare the Americans. But uh, they so outnumbered the British and Canadians. Uh, the battle was assured. It was just a skirmish. But suddenly, what did Major Hancock do? <laughs> he charged. He felt the best defense was a good offense and he charged. He was repulsed and he charged again and he captured artillery from the Americans. Well, reinforcements eventually waded across the icy stream and the Americans felt a larger force was coming and they retreated in disarray. General Wilkinson did lose his command and the Americans never could take Montreal. In that battle, 254 Americans lost their lives and it ended General Wilkinson's career once and for all. He lost against such small numbers. The best defense was a good offense. Well, this is just, in many of our lifetime, the final battle. It took place in Korea during the often forgotten Korean War. A war which featured Vicious battles between the North Korean communists, the Chinese who interceded on their behalf in enormous numbers, and an international force led by the Americans uh, protecting South Korea along with their soldiers. You know, armies came from all over. New Zealand, Australia, the Philippines, Puerto Rico, Turkey. They all joined on the United Nations side. Well, the Chinese came in force. They were going to wipe this international group off the map. In 1951, a place called Yultong, a battle was fought. 40,000 Chinese troops attacked in the middle of the night against a lightly held portion of the line. Their goal was to completely surround and annihilate the U.S. 3rd Division. And they almost did. Because as they had an enormous bombardment at the beginning of that battle, all communications were lost between the different international groups. Well, there was a small group, small group of about 900 soldiers from the Philippines. They were part of the 10th uh, Battalion Tactical Team. And this small group, they had the Turkish army on one side and the Puerto Rican soldiers on the other side. As the battle progressed, The Turks received word to retreat back to safety and they retreated. The Puerto Ricans, they broke in battle and fled as well. The Filipinos didn't get the message. (laughs) The small group, which was supposed to have tanks, but the tanks never had arrived, they were there with a group made up largely of clerks, bakers, chaplains, and other rear rear echelon non-combatant people. The Chinese attacked and the Filipinos fought and they fought all night. It stopped the attack of the Chinese. It stymied it. Throughout the night they fought and by the next morning, the Filipino commander, his name was Conrado Yap, he led a rescue mission to the nearby hill to rescue one of his besieged battalions and he died in the attempt but all of his men were evacuated safely. It gave It gave the United Nations forces the time to regroup and they eventually stopped the Chinese attack because the Filipinos never 
fell. They held. All alone. Chaplains, bakers, and typists fighting against 40,000 Chinese soldiers. It was incredible. It was incredible. After the war, General Douglas MacArthur, the Allied commander, said, if you gave me 10,000 Filipinos, I could conquer the world. Incredible stories against all odds. But of course, all of them, friends, pale in comparison to Easter morning, what Jesus did there for you and I. The final conflict took place at Golgotha. Golgotha. Christus Victor. Oh, the numbers. He was not outnumbered this to this. It was Jesus alone standing for you and for me in the breach that day. Golgotha. Christus Victor, that phrase, it sounds old because it's in Latin, but it was really coined in a 1931 book by Swedish theologian Gustav Aulain. He said that the Bible is full of themes of Jesus winning the conflict over authorities, powers of darkness, spiritual evil in the heavenly realms. Jesus went to battle for you and for I. Some of those passages that speak of that today give us deeper and better understanding of what Christ accomplished for us on the cross on Golgotha and the empty tomb nearby on Easter morning. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 18, we read of the one man, Jesus. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass, Paul's comparing sin coming through one man, Adam, with salvation coming through one man, Jesus. Just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man Many will be made righteous. Talk about long odds. Jesus, fully God. But as Philippians says, he emptied himself of his glory and he came and he lived his life fully human. By the grace of God, trusting his Father in heaven and the leading of God's Spirit, Jesus lived his life for you and I. Jesus fought a battle every day. It's a battle we're familiar with, a battle with temptation, testing, and sin. Jesus, though, fought a battle that you and I can't conceive because when the temptation gets tough, we invariably bow to it. We give in. But Jesus never did. He lived a perfect life for us so that on that cross, He could bear your sin and mine and pay the price for it. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Jesus showed that in living that perfect life, He, the only righteous one, the Lamb of God, could truly take away the sin of the world. 
First Peter chapter three, and I look forward to being in First Peter chapter three with you again soon in our morning messages. First Peter chapter three, verse 18 speaks that the righteous died for the unrighteous. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He put to death in, he was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Jesus and his resurrection broke the power of sin and death. The curse that we all languished under, Jesus, by being sinless and paying for our sin, broke that cycle of sin and death. The victory's won against all odds. But friends, how can we have part in the victory of Jesus? You and I born into a lost and sinful world. John chapter 11, as we heard earlier, the worship team reading from this passage, Jesus is on his way to raise Lazarus from the dead, revealing to the fact that God has power over life and death. And Jesus meets Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, And Martha says, Lord, why didn't you come earlier? He didn't have to die. You could have healed him. But Jesus knew what he had in store for them. And he reveals to her that death is not a barrier to God. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And he asked her that question he asks you today. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Friends, if you do believe it, if you've opened your heart and your life to Jesus, if you've turned away from your sin and turned to salvation in Christ, you are saved. And Jesus' victory over sin and death becomes your victory. He gives you his victory. That's made clear again in that great resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, late in the chapter, verses 54, the Apostle Paul says, when the perishable, that is you and I, mortal beings, our perishable bodies, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, Then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. When we stand at an open grave, we feel defeated. Death's one another one. No one escapes alive. But Jesus revealed that what he did for us Easter morning swallowed death whole. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's through putting your faith in Christ and Christ alone. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved than the name of Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Remember years ago, the old hymn, Faith is the Victory. I've been humming that all week as I worked on this message. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Friends, we live in a crazy world these days. 
There's sin, there's death, there's division, there's war internationally, there's pandemic, there's so many things that cause people to fear. But we don't. We choose faith over fear because the victory is won. The issue is no longer in doubt because Easter morning proves that Jesus has won the victory. First John chapter 5 beginning in verse 4 is the passage that speaks of that. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Faith is the victory. He's risen. He's risen indeed. The victory's won. Friends, as we face uncertain days, we face it with certainty because our eyes are not on circumstances. Our eyes are not on need. Our eyes are on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorned its shame, and now sits at the right hand of God in heaven. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful man that you may not grow weary and lose heart. This Easter and all the days after, keep your eyes on Jesus. Faith is the victory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, as we glance through the pages of history, we see many unlikely victories, but all of them had reasons, human reasons. All of them were within the realm of possibility. But Lord, what Jesus did for us was impossible for us. It's impossible for a leopard to change its spots. It's impossible for the sinful human heart to become clean. But Jesus, the Lamb of God, took away the sin of the world. Lord, your sinless one, he lived a life of full obedience and grace and love. And then, Lord, he stretched out his arms wide to show his love for us as we nailed him to the cross. And Lord, though... Satan thought he won a victory. Lord, Easter morning revealed that Jesus had the victory. That he swallowed death whole and broke the power of sin and death. Lord, I thank you today that through faith that power is broken in people's lives. That though we may die physically, we live eternally. And one day we will all be together glorified and in your presence singing with joy the victory of Jesus. Lord, as we go from this place, this place of worship to our places of life and ministry, I pray, Lord, that we would recognize and live in the victory and the freedom we have in Christ. That we live by faith, not by sight, for faith is the victory. Lord, we pray all of this with Easter joy. In the name of the risen Lord, amen. God bless you.